Saturday morning she tells me that she's going to Los Angeles to go shopping and she wanted me to go with her and I said no I'm not going to do that. As soon as she left you know I'm in the backyard playing with my dog when my friend comes and he basically says my family is hurting for money. I have this plan. I want to rob a liquor store and I would like your help with it. And I immediately told him no. Like that's crazy. And he begins to leave and at that point I start thinking about all the bad things that could happen to my friend especially if I allow him to go alone. I call him back. I say, hey, you know, friend, come, you know, come back. I'll go with you. And so my friend comes. I agree to go with him. I go inside of my house. I leave my money, lock up the door, and I, ha- I make a, a quick little prayer where I basically pray to God and I say, you know, I know that what I'm about to do is wrong, but I hope that in the end everything turns out for the best. And with that, I lock up and I go with him. Making, making, making contact. Frankie Guzman grew up in La Colonia, a neighborhood in Oxnard, California, about 60 miles north of Los Angeles. He calls it an under-resourced and over-policed community. It's also where he made a decision that changed the course of his life. I'm Laura Flynn. On this edition of Making Contact, we're going to meet people who've traveled to the depths of despair, but managed to not let it define them. Let's go back to Guzman's story. We go to the mall, we steal a car, an IROC Z28 convertible, um, and we drive over to a, a, lo- a convenience store and we rob it. We run off with the money, we end up stashing the money and the guns, and on our way to then sell the car, because we had a, ideas about you know making more money in addition to what we had taken by selling this car, we were arrested. I was given the maximum available time of 15 years and committed to youth authority. I was transferred over to Fred C. Nellis School for Boys in Whittier. There was a senior youth correctional officer, which is the equivalent of a sergeant named Augie Alvarado. Um, let's say a kid acted out. What they would do is engage in this practice of tipping, where they would take a kid, um, handcuff his hand or his arms behind his back, tilt him, and while he's off balance, leaning forward with his hands behind his back, they would let him go and these kids would fall face first into the concrete, oftentimes breaking their teeth, breaking their noses. I spent three years in that environment. That when I got out, I just did not trust authority figures. I didn't believe that I had been sent to a place that was truly intended to make me better. I felt like I was sent there to be worse, and and in fact, I did come out worse. And so the first time I was out of jail, CYA, I was only out for three months, and I went back for drinking. When I got out a year later, I was only out for two months. When I went back that third time, you know, I got out at age 21, I felt very differently in my mind. So I said, how can I not go back to jail? And I figured I'm going to go to school. And so I go to community college. The behavior of these people at the community college was such that what they were saying to me was, what do you want to do with your life? And how can we help you to do that? And they, in fact, did help me to do that once I figured it out. But initially, I was just struck. I'm like, what do you mean, what do I want to do? Like, that hasn't been asked to me ever. Well, ultimately, I spent two years at at community college, and I was getting ready to transfer, and then one day I was arrested for something that I didn't do. Police uh, claimed that there was a robbery in the area, and they came after me because I had a a record for robbery. They arrested me, took me to CYA. I spent two months there only to be released because the board of parole determined that I had nothing to do with that. When I got out, I had lost all my school, my work, you know, and, and, and really, in a nutshell, I felt like I had fallen from grace. I began to use drugs, I began to use you know, whatever was offered to me, and one day, about a month after being released, I was stopped by the police and arrested for being in possession of a controlled substance. So for that possession of a drug, I was sentenced to serve a year and a half, and now I'm back. 
I just knew I didn't want to go back ever again. So when I got out in the fall of 2004, I was about eight months away from my 25th birthday. What that meant was eight months left on the time that I could potentially serve under my original offense. I needed to find a way to just survive those eight months. So immediately upon release in August of 2004, I applied to the UC system because I was a low-income student. I got four free applications. I applied to UC, UCLA, UC Irvine, and Santa Barbara simply because they were in my area uh, in Oxnard. And I didn't really have an interest in going anywhere else, but because I had one free application, I burned the last one on Berkeley because I heard it was a good school. In March of the following year, I get my acceptance letters to all four. And when my mentors at Oxnard College discovered that I had been admitted to all of them, they basically told me, you're going to Berkeley or we're going to kick your ass. <laughs> all the while, my mom is just concerned. And she says, Frank, you know, I want you to stop hanging with your friends. They're, they're no good. They're just going to get you in trouble. I really didn't understand what she meant, or at least I didn't give a lot of credit to what she was saying. Until one day, you know, my was my friends. This is 10 days before my 25th birthday, 10 days before I discharge on CYA parole. We're, we go out to the club and everything is fine. The club is done, it's two o'clock. A rival gang that approaches one of my friends that I had come to the, to the club with and they start a fight. And pretty soon it's everybody's fighting. And at some point I remember just falling to the ground because I felt someone had pushed me in the stomach. And when I stand up, all I can see is blood squirting out of my belly. And I realized that I've been stabbed. I go to the hospital the next morning, I wake up after surgery, and who's in my uh, hospital room but my parole officer? And he made a deal with me, you know, aside from telling me how disappointed he was. He says to me, if my supervisors don't find out about this, I'm gonna let you walk out of this hospital whenever, that, whenever they see it as appropriate. If my supervisors do find out, then I'm gonna have to do my job, violate your parole, send you back in your current condition to serve out the remaining 10 days of your parole, and you will essentially be discharged dishonorably. Well, luckily for me, they didn't find out. I get out of uh, the hospital. That night, my friends come to my house and they say, Frankie, we know the guy that, that stabbed you. We know where he lives. What do you wanna do? What I explained to them was, you know, I have an opportunity to kind of get out of this life and go away to college, and I don't wanna give up that opportunity and squander it on this guy when I understand that that guy needs a hug. He needs some self-esteem, and they accepted it. So, upon graduation, I applied to work at the National Center for Youth Law as John O'Toole, the executive director's assistant, and I'm hired. And for the next two years, I'm working in an office that is largely focused on suing governments or, or collaborating with governments to affect broad systemic change. So in other words, we're working to change the system for hundreds if not thousands of kids and it just sparked my interest for law. And so I applied to law schools and ultimately I'm admitted to UCLA School of Law and I fully set myself up to come back to this work doing juvenile justice advocacy and reform work to affect as many kids as possible. And so my, my project that I developed was working to reduce a practice uh, called direct file. You know, we, we have a serious problem today where we prosecute young kids as adults in the adult criminal justice system. If you're a prosecutor, you have the option of, of charging them as a juvenile where the consequences largely will involve punishment with rehabilitation. We know from research that on the whole these kids will come out much better than if they're sent to prison. Many of these kids will age out of 
criminal conduct. But if you charge him as an adult, he will not get any opportunities for rehabilitation. So what I say is, you know, we have an obligation to make sure that these people that we send to prison or I hope we send to the juvenile justice system learn the harm that they've caused, understand it, come to terms with it and deal with it as we would want them to do as opposed to just sending them to prison and not really thinking about it but knowing that all that happens is they become worse. They oftentimes become monsters and they affect every other person that goes into prison. Those guys that are going in for one year or the guys that are going in for 15 years, everybody's affected by these people. And we have a responsibility for making sure that that doesn't continue to happen. Frankie Guzman's work also involves expanding rehabilitation and prevention services to keep young Californians from entering or re-entering the criminal justice system. There are a lot of people like Guzman who went to prison, came out, and dedicated their life to making a positive difference. But we don't often hear their stories. Today, you will. For Frederick Hudson, selling marijuana was a shortcut to reaching his bigger goal, opening up a gas station. But his marijuana business was booming and expanding. Soon enough, he was distributing weed across the country. Then, at the age of 24, he was convicted of drug charges and sent to prison. You know, a lot of times in prison, the flow of information is so slow. You know, you would come across a magazine, you would come across a, a newspaper, and you would read about what's going on in the outside world. And the way my brain works, you know, I would just start thinking and brainstorming on different ways to do things or different ways to address things. And and then if I thought in my mind that I came up with a a, a decent way to do something different than how it's currently being done, then I would spend the next few weeks or months or however long it took me to make a business plan or business model out of it. And then after I go through that mental exercise and I felt comfortable with it, I'll put it to the shelf. And then the next inspiration that I will come across, I'll do the same thing and repeat the process. So one of them was a cell phone service idea. Now I think about it. I wanted to basically build a business model that would allow people to have free cell phone service um, based on advertising. That was a little bit far-fetched, not really scalable. Another one was um, uh, mobile window tinting, where there was another one for um, concert and event promotions. And there was a several others I don't even remember one. I remember there was one around real estate. I just noticed how problematic and hard and, and expensive it was to stay connected with your level on the outside, that it either was um, too costly for your, for your loved ones on the outside, or it was just too inconvenient or hard for them to, to work with and deal with. Um, and then what that did was it just made, um, it just really cut off those lines of communication with the same people that you're going to depend on the most once you're released. When I was released, you know, I had all these business ideas and I had to think, well, based on my current resources and what I had available to me, because when I was in halfway house, I didn't have anything. Um, and I mean, I didn't even have a place to stay. And I said, well, based on what I have, you know, which one of these plans do I really think I can pull off based on where I'm at today? And I thought that the photo idea, sending photos would be the easiest one because even then I wasn't thinking about, you know, what this would look like at scale. I thought, you know, I'll go to a Best Buy, borrow a couple hundred dollars from my sister and go buy a photo printer and try to set up a landing page or some kind of website and then have people come to the website and then email me pictures, and, and then I'll print it out and stuff the envelope and mail it out myself. That's what I was thinking. So when I first got to the halfway house, I called my co-founder, Alfonso, and I told him, hey, man, I have this idea, um, and this is what I want to do. And he liked the idea, and he said, okay, we're going to start. So he took 
some of his savings, um, and it wasn't a lot of money. It might have been, you know, a couple thousand dollars. And we then went out and went on um, the freelancer website and start trying to hire independent contractors to build um, the website. Over the next six months, we were able to get the first version of what's now Photos by Pigeonly Built. Um, and then during that time, um, we reached out to friends and family member, and we would get small amounts of money from people um, over time. So, you know, I'm talking about $500 here, $1,000 here, $2,000 there. It's very small amounts of money over a period of about a year and a half. Um, and that's how we were able to um, build the business and the very first version of the business and get something going. Now, fast forward today, um, we've now, we're a team of 25. So far, we've raised a total of $5 million in seed capital to help us grow and scale the business. Um, but, you know, when we started, it was, you know, it was just two of us. And, you know, we were just, we were basically living week to week. Um, and then also, because we was in that situation, we didn't really have the luxury of just, you know, we'll just play around and come up with a business idea and then, um see how we can make money later, we had to really focus on how do we make this make money today? How, what What is it that the people want? How do we build exactly what they want so that they're willing to pay for it? We had to do all that in the very beginning because we knew that we had to be able to generate money every day so that, you know, you could pay your cell phone bill or you can buy food or pay your rent and things like that. Everyone's going to have their own opinion about, you know, you know why are you doing something that helps prisoners, you know, they deserve to be in jail and all that kind of stuff. And, and some of those points are valid, but the the real thing that it boils down to, regardless of of why someone's in prison, because the majority of people don't have life sentences and they're going to be released at some point in the future, the real question is what type of person do you want to release? Do you want to release someone who um, has been um, isolated and, and cannot cope and has lost all ties with the people, the friends and family, the support network? And one of the things that studies point to is that people are more, less likely to return to prison if they have those strong family ties, um, those people that are going to be their support network when they're released. So the way we look at it is it's not about, you know, what you're doing for someone while they're there. It's more so about what type of person you want to release. And the closer you can keep, you know, someone in prison, you know, tied and connected with his with his kids or his mother or his significant other, um, you know, the better that is for society as a whole. Frederick Hudson's company, Pigeonly, connects families and friends with their loved ones behind bars through easy photo sharing and cheaper phone calls. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Hello, this is Clemmy. Remember, it takes a great deal of time and pressure for a piece of faith to turn into gold. Leave a message. Peace. Hello, my name is Clemmy Greenlee. I am 56 years old. I am in Nashville, Tennessee. I've really got my first feel of handcuffs at the age of 12. And so the, the talk of the town was, did y'all hear about that little girl, Clemmie Greenlee, getting arrested, going to juvenile? And so 
these men came around that that heard about it and wanted to see who this plenty was and and uh, when they came around the neighborhood, it was me and a couple of more young girls that just be out just doing twelve year old girl stuff, you know, just hot scotch or playing jacks or whatever we was doing at twelve. But they came with some items. So, you know, we thinking that it was like maybe a church mission or something that's coming, you know, to the hood, to the poor project, giving out stuff and of course me being um, born into a poor family, uh, I wanted a brand new pair of shoes. Or I wanted a new dress or a nice necklace. And and I took uh, some of the items that they gave me and not knowing that it would cost me at the end. And after I had received the items, then I, I had bought myself a price tag and didn't realize it. And that's where my sex trafficking started. Uh, when they came back around for me to pay them back in full, and they wasn't talking about money. My life after that was uh, pretty hell. Uh, like I said, I was 12 years old, and and uh, my life went from just being an innocent little girl to uh, being tortured in the early 70s and 80s. People didn't really believe in, in sex trafficking anyway. Uh, and then when you're coming from a poor-income neighborhood, there's nobody really looking for you. There's nobody missing you. You, you know, uh, my parents was alcoholics. They were lovable parents, but my mom was a maid. My dad was a, a truck driver for a bill company. So it's not like they really had key eye on me in the first place. Well, it went on for me pretty much uh, all my life. When I got arrested at 18, I just knew that the system would want to know who I am, where's my parents, why am I charged with prostitution at 18, why do I have all these battle scars on me already, been stabbed in the back, all kind of stuff. And nobody really just paid attention. So I think my blessing worry is that I ended up going back to jail. I went well, I went back to jail off so many times that either they were tired of paying for me to get out because I wasn't performing enough money coming in and it was like a waste of time so I kind of like aged out of them the the pimp part now but I'm still stuck in being a junkie being homeless and being a prostitute no education nobody to love on me and nobody to have guide me and so that's all I knew was to live on the streets and sell my body for my drugs and then I caught a case by stabbing one of my tricks and I called an intent to commit murder case. I was really glad about that because I knew I was going back to prison for a long time. And I knew I didn't have to come back out and do this again or get beaten and all of that again. But um some reason, after nine months, I was released uh, on that charge. Number one, the man didn't die. He came out of a coma, so they couldn't flip it into a murder charge. And number two, he didn't want to press charges, and the state didn't take it up. So I got out. So when I got out, I was like maybe 39, 40. And that's when my life really changed when I was like 41 years old and found my way to a program called the Magdalene House. And I said, if this program can do anything for me, to make me come back strong, to learn how to live again and get my life on track. I, you know, today I just 
I, I sit back and I laugh at it. I mean, it's, it make me cry because I didn't have a life. I didn't have a um, little girl life. I didn't have a teenage life. I, I didn't have a life. I'm 56 now, you know. Um, I didn't do nothing. And so I do a mother's group called Mom, Mothers Over Murder. I go out and get these mothers who have been affected just like me by violence. I travel and go around and speak on what we could do for our neighborhood to reduce some of this violence. And I go in and out of schools and juveniles and try to talk to the young girl about sex trafficking. That's all I do. That's my nine to five. So I wanted them to hear the real good truth of it. I don't want to be no sad old good for me story. I want to be a powerful truth story and have people around the world understand that even though all of this is happening over there in Philippines and Cambodia, I wish I could go over there and help them girls. I wish I could right today. But I want people to realize this is happening right here in the United States right today. And it ain't just the girls. It's some boys they are getting today, too. And I wanted to keep that message going, and that's what I will continue to do to the day I die. In 2007, Clemmie Greenlee was awarded Nashvilleian of the Year. Next, we'll meet 53-year-old Darris Young, whose life started off pretty smoothly. Captivated by images of the civil rights movement, especially Bloody Sunday, when black folks walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the right to vote, only to be met with crushing police batons, Young was also motivated to challenge racial injustice. Here's his story. Both my parents, you know, even though they never went to college, um, they both were like heavy on education. You know, you know um, get an education, go to school, do the right things. You know, life will turn out good for you. So I actually went to two years of community college. I had a sociology class with a, a professor. I still remember his name. It was Oscar Williams. He actually was encouraging, you know, more minorities and black men to actually get into policing because at that time you know people felt that if we just had more people that looked like us policing our streets we would have um, less problems during that time it was kind of like it is now lots of um, police violence within the um, african-american and latino communities i actually applied for the richmond police department and they ended up getting sued. At that time was one of the biggest civil rights lawsuits to ever um, hit a police department and they had to have some reforms. And so I think it was in January of 1985, I was actually hired. And after going through the academy, I was elected the vice president of my academy class. And after graduation um, from the academy, I actually started what was called a field training program. And that went terribly wrong. I was actually told that, you know, in uncertain words, you know, you treat African-Americans different than you do um, people that aren't black. And consequently, there was only like two um, African-Americans out of the five of us that actually made it through the field training process. And one of the Hispanics um, made it. They got rid of us. I began to look at the world through the lens of white and black, you know, and also I began to 
actually, you know, question what justice was. And I began to ask myself if people who are put in a place to, you know, enforce justice, right? If they're not just, then how can they enforce justice? And I got real disenchanted with with the way things were. If you're not grounded, you begin to drift. And and that's what happened to me. And consequently, it was in the era of the crack cocaine boom. And I actually got caught up in um, um, using crack cocaine and I became a substance abuser. And as a substance abuser, it started landing me uh, first county jail and then to state prison on two occasions. And I really didn't know um, during my 17 years of incarceration what would actually await me. I knew that I wanted to maybe be an asset to my community. And so I thought, you know, what be better way to serve my community and especially young people, would, which was to go into counseling. So I said, you know, I'm going to pursue substance abuse counseling. And so um, that's what I did while I was in during the last few years of prison. I recall De December 29th, 2013, the Oakland Tribune um, came out with an article on Zach and said he was taking over the Ella Baker Center. And one of his goals, he said, was to cut down the incarceration of um, African-American and Latino youth. And I kind of wrote him and I, and I told him, you know, I really, really, you know, appreciate your aspiration on trying to keeping young Latinos and African-American men from going to prison. And Zach actually wrote me back and he invited me to just have a conversation with him. Zach said, you know, we have an organizing position coming up. Uh, why don't you uh, apply for it? You know, no guarantee that you'll get the job. And, you know, I was kind of, well, you know, um, I don't know. And I actually did it. And I actually got the job after that. What kind of work are you doing today? Well, I'm a I'm considered a community organizer, and all of my work um, it's revolved around ending mass incarceration, in particular here in Alameda County. The state came up with a plan to relieve the um, prison system of overcrowding by this thing that they called realignment in 2011. They said, "Okay, what we'll do is we'll send nonviolent, non-serious offenders." over to the hands of local sheriffs and we'll create, you know, we'll give money. We began to see that 50% of the money that was allocated for realignment was going to the sheriff's department. As a result, there weren't enough people who provided direct services for the amount of people that were coming, entering back into the county to be able to get services. So we went on a campaign. We said, you know, we want 50% of the money to go to community-based organizations to provide ranchy services, um, job training, um, jobs, um, substance abuse counseling, um, anger management, those types of things that help individuals who have been confined and who've known nothing but confinement most of their lives get a grip and come back into society. What we need to start really focusing on is poverty because poverty breeds mass incarceration. And unless that becomes the focal point of this whole conversation, right, 
then in 20 years or so, we'll be right back to the same place. So unless, as a nation, if we're serious about ending mass incarceration, then we definitely have to be serious about, you know, the war on poverty that was started in 1965 by Lyndon B. Johnson, but it was never, ever implemented into full activity or strategy. And I think that's what we need to do. That was Darius Young, a community organizer with the Ella Baker Center in Oakland, California. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Do you have a story to share about someone who's come out of prison and made an impact? Send it to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to the Omnia Foundation for partial funding of this program. For more information about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.